1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted uh, ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith, the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example uh, to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask God to bless his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark uh, to grope around in, in the dark and try to figure out who you are and who we are and why we're here, and especially that we might uh, know the way of, of life uh, through faith in Jesus Christ in your gospel. Thank you for, for giving us the way of salvation uh, so clearly in your word, and we ask once again that you'd work in us by your Holy Spirit, uh, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Teach us your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants here, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you know, it's it's obviously Christmas time, as you can tell from the decorations here. And, and you know, every every year around Christmas time, uh, we take a number of Sundays and we look through, sometimes we look through the different passages in Matthew and Luke that deal with the, the birth account of Jesus Christ, and that's always a good thing to do. We've done that in the past. Uh, there's been at least once that we've gone through the Gospel of John, the opening chapter, and looked at, it's, John doesn't give you the historical account of Jesus' birth, but what he gives is kind of a theological account. He, he kind of explains what was really happening in that, in that uh, manger, when, who that baby really uh, was. We've also in past years looked through a number of the Old Testament prophetic texts, like Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, other places, that foretold hundreds of years in advance uh, the birth of, of Jesus Christ. Well, I thought that this particular year uh, it might be good to do something a little bit different, and so, Lord willing, we're going to spend a few Sundays, uh, the next few counting this one, looking at the, at the Christmas, uh, not the Christmas story, but looking at Christmas from a slightly different perspective. And so what we're, we're going to do is we're going to look at a few passages that tell us why Jesus came, to tell us why he came in the first place. You know, very often at this time of year we like to say things like, or you might see bumper stickers or buttons that say something like, Jesus is the reason for the season, and that's a good reminder. And it's very easy to get wrapped up, in, no pun intended, in, in other things, in gifts and parties and trees and decorations and lights. We like all those things. I think those things are good things. They, it, it gets us excited about, about uh, Christmas, so hopefully for the right reason. Um, but why is Jesus the reason for the season? What, why did he have to come? Why is that true? What is the reason, the real and ultimate reason and purpose for the incarnation of Jesus Christ? That's what I want to look at these next few Sundays. Now, I'm sure that when I was reading the text from 1 Timothy, your first thought may have been something like, 
this doesn't sound like a Christmas text. You know, what is pastor doing? Why are we in First Timothy? Why are we in chapter 1? Uh, and that's true in, in some regard. It doesn't recount for us the birth of Christ, the historical details. But I think what Paul is doing here is he's not giving us the what of Christmas. He's giving us the why. And that's what I think is good for us uh, these next few weeks to, to look at. So we're going to look really at one verse, and that verse is verse 15. And Paul gives us here the why of Christmas in the form of a trustworthy saying. What he says there in verse 15, he tells Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds, of whom I am the foremost. Or if you know the old King James, of whom I am chief. He's the number one sinner and Jesus saved him. So Christmas, which is about the incarnation of the Son of God, uh, is about that. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, John 1.14. And what that should do is that should serve as a reminder to all of us why he came into the world in the first place. You know, it's almost as if Paul invites us to memorize it. He calls it a, a saying, a very pithy and short saying, that Jesus Christ came into the world to do what? To save sinners. You know, and so if, if you lose sight of that or if we miss that, we really miss the point of Christmas altogether. If we can't keep that in mind or fail to keep it in mind, we lose sight of the main reason that Christmas exists and the reason that Jesus was born of Mary. Now, Christmas is not just a time for family to get together and friends. As nice as that is, nothing wrong with that. It's, it's not even just about a sentimental retelling of the birth of the baby Jesus. And that's okay that we include those things and we have sentimental feelings at times about them. But it, we have to remember it's about the mercy and grace of God in sending forth his son to save the wicked. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, I do not know why it is, but we often lose a sense of the purpose in telling the Christmas story. We focus so much on the birth of the baby and on the sentimental that goes uh, with that story. And, and there is a certain amount of legitimate sentimentality that goes with it, uh, that we miss the most important things. Actually, the story is treated quite simply in Scripture, and the emphasis is always on the fact that Jesus came to die. He came to die. The reason he was sent forth in the fullness of time and became uh, became word became flesh was so that he might die in the place of sinners. And what that means is, as we've often said, you can't separate the manger from the cross. When you look at the manger, the cross is somewhere not far in the background, looming on the horizon. The sinless Son of God, the Lord of glory, was born of the Virgin Mary so that he might live and die in the place of the wicked. That's what Christmas is all about. That's the reason for the incarnation of Christ. And so we're going to look at verse 15, and we're going to unpack in some way this short verse in a few steps. And the first thing I'd like us to look at is the fact that he says, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Those are the kinds of people that Jesus was born to save. Because of the incarnation, because of Christmas, and what we think about at that time of year, we should have no doubt that Jesus, not, this, not just that Jesus saves, it's easy to say that. That Jesus saves what kind of people? Sin, real sinners. Actual flesh and blood sinners. That's who he came to save. Remember in that text in Matthew's Gospel, when, uh, when Joseph being told about this baby that was going to be born of his wife, 
this Virgin Mary, he says, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Gives the reason. Because he will save his people from their sins. What does the the name Jesus mean? The Lord saves. That's what his, his name tells you why he came. The name was very specifically chosen for that reason. You know, John 3, 16 and 17, also not necessarily a Christmas text, but if you think about it, it does give you the reason for Christmas. It says, For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. If all God wanted to do was condemn condemn everyone, and he would have been just and right to do so, if God had decided he was going to just, in his just judgment, judge every sinner uh, with, with condemnation and hell, he could have justly done that. He could have done that. But if he was going to do that, he would have had no reason to send his son. He did not send him to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Matthew 9, verses 10 to 13, similarly says, And Jesus reclined at a table in the house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but whom? Sinners. Now, is Jesus saying that there were righteous people that didn't need him? Was that his point? Was he saying that there was a righteous person anywhere that didn't need him? No, he's saying that he he came not to call good people because there are none. There are none. No one's righteous. No, not one, Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Well, Jesus says, he tells them, go and learn. He points them to a text in the Old Testament. Go and go and learn what this means. It's a rebuke. You teachers of the law, you're supposed to be the experts. Go back and read this text. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, Jesus was, was going to be God's mercy by sacrificing himself. And he came to call sinners, not the righteous. So if you're a sinner this morning, if you don't know the Lord, uh, I have good news. You, you meet the qualifications, so to speak, to come to Christ for salvation because you're a sinner. He came not to call or save righteous people, but to call sinners to repentance and salvation. John Calvin writes this, the word sinners, in, in verse 15, the word sinners is emphatic. And what he means by that is in, in the Greek, you know, the word order is not the same as in our English translations, and that's because Greek does things differently. But, you know, they didn't have italics or bold print in those days. And so to emphasize something in a sentence, you'd put it first or early in the sentence. If you read it in a a wooden way, it would sound funny. Literally, if you wanted to translate it woodenly, it's sinners to save. Jesus came sinners to save. That's that's how it emphasizes. He He says that the word sinners is emphatic. Even those who recognize that Christ's work is to save admit that it is more difficult to believe that this salvation belongs to sinners. Our mind is always prone to dwell on our own worthiness, and as soon as our unworthiness becomes apparent, our confidence fails. Thus, the more a man feels the burden of his sins, 
he ought with the greater courage to betake himself to Christ, relying on what is here taught, that he came to bring salvation not to the righteous but to sinners. So I ask this morning, have you come to Christ by faith for salvation from your sins? And if not, what, why not? There's a lot of reasons for people's unbelief, uh, but if, is, is your unknown worthiness what's holding you back? Do you, do you wonder, would Jesus really save someone like me? I know he saves other kinds of people, but I'm, he doesn't realize how bad I am. Do you think that, is that what's holding you back? That's the last thing that should stop you or hold you back from coming to faith in Christ. For you're the kind of person, if you're a sinner, you're exactly the kind of person he came to save. He didn't die on the cross and suffer the wrath of God for righteous people, but for sinners, for actual sinners. And the second thing I'd like to look at from our text is Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to save sinners. He didn't come just to be a hypothetical savior. Jesus didn't come just to make salvation possible. He came to save, to actually save sinners. Luke 19.10, a familiar passage says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to do what? And to save the lost. Not just to seek them, but to actually save them. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is still, even now, seeking and saving the lost through the preaching of his gospel, the good news of his birth, death, and resurrection, that of Jesus Christ. He's still saving sinners. He didn't just die to make salvation possible. If he just came to make salvation possible, would anybody be saved? No. None of us on our own would ever turn to Christ to have life and salvation in his name. And one of the things that that means is you and I, those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, ought to be confident in sharing the gospel. Why? Because Jesus came to actually save sinners. What does that mean? That means many sinners, not all, maybe not even most, but many sinners will When they hear the gospel, they will believe. They will repent and turn to Christ and be saved. And who's and who's doing that? Jesus is. He is the reason that his word bears fruit and never returns void. He is the reason that the gospel is what? The power of God unto salvation for all who believe. You know, if we were left up to our own abilities, our own knowledge and ability to speak and whatnot, if that was all it was, you and I would have a reason, a good reason, a really good reason to not have any confidence and sharing the gospel. I would not stand here doing what I'm doing. You know, remember the story of Moses in the early chapters of Exodus when God tells Moses, hey, I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and yada, yada, yada. And, and what, is, what does Moses say? You got the wrong guy. You know, I, I'm, I'm, not a good, I'm not a good talker. I don't talk good. And what, what did God say? Who, who made your mouth? Your, your mouth isn't an obstacle to me. And he tells him, I'll be with your mouth. Then he tells him, I'll send Aaron with you. Like He overcomes all these things because Moses isn't the point. You and I aren't the point. No preacher is the point. None of us are able to save sinners, but Jesus does. We aren't left to ourselves. If we're left to ourselves, we'd have no reason to keep going. We'd have no reason to have confidence in preaching the gospel that people might come to Christ, but we're not left to ourselves. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? What does he promise at the end of the Great Commission? Lo, I'm with you, what? Always, even to the end of the age. What's the point of that promise? Is he saying, I'm with you always while I watch you fail? You keep preaching and I'll just sit there and watch and nothing's going to happen? No, he means 
Sinners are going to be saved. And the last thing I'd like to point out from our text is not that just that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and that he came to save sinners, but what does Paul say at the end? It's, it's, it's kind of ironic that Paul includes himself, his own conversion, in that faithful and trustworthy saying, doesn't he? He uses his own example that Christ Jesus doesn't just save sinners. Christ Jesus cha- saved the chief of sinners. He saved Paul. It's as if he wanted to encourage us to believe all these things that he uses himself as an example. Now, he's not boasting in himself. He's not saying, look at me. You know, Jesus got me on his team. That's how we think when we think of, you know, I, I'm guilty of this. Maybe you are too. You know, you, you find out that the famous quarterback for your favorite team is a Christian. You know, oh, look, Jesus has so-and-so on his team. Now things are really going to start happening. Or somebody famous, some famous singer or music artist comes to the Lord. Now, look, now things are really going to start happening because now Jesus has somebody important on his team. That's that's not at all what Paul is saying here at, at all. He, what's, what's Paul boasting in here, himself or Jesus? He's boasting in Christ Jesus and nothing about himself. In fact, all Paul talks about in the passage is his own unworthiness. He doesn't say, you know, he's not like that, that Pharisee in, in, in the Gospels. That Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? They, they went to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee is praying, and he says, Oh, Lord, I thank you. So far, so good. I thank you that I'm not like that guy. He, what, what's he thanking God for? That he's so good. And remember the, 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 the uh, tax collector wouldn't even look up and beat his chest and said, Oh, Lord, be merciful to me. What? A sinner. And Jesus said, that was that guy's the one that went home justified, not the Pharisee. Well, Paul is boasting in the Lord, and he's talking only about his own unworthiness. He says, in verse 13, he calls himself that in his former life, before Christ, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Insolent means violent. And Paul was, was deadly serious about persecuting God's people. It says in Acts 8.3, Saul, that was his name before his conversion, Saul, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I mean, picture that in your head. If Paul put his hands on people. Paul didn't just say bad things. You know, we, we think about people on maybe you know Facebook or Twitter or some social media saying something not so nice. Oh, Paul put his hands on people and dragged them off to prison for believing in Christ. Remember after his conversion in Acts chapter 9, the church in Jerusalem, those Christians that were huddled there, they were afraid of him for a time after his conversion. They, they thought it was a trick. Acts 9.26 says, And when, they, when he had come to Jerusalem, that's Paul, he attempted to join the disciples. He, he tried to get with the church. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Like they knew how bad he was. They remembered what he did to the Christians in Jerusalem, and they're like, this has got to be a trick. He's got to be trying to infiltrate the church to drag more of us off. This can't. Jesus couldn't possibly have saved this guy, is kind of what they thought. And then again, Galatians 1.13, it seems like Paul's constant refrain. Galatians 1.13, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I mean, Paul was an enemy of the cross of Christ before Christ stopped him on the Damascus road. So think about it. Paul twice in our text calls himself, he uses the word in the ESV, the foremost or the chief of sinners. Twice, verses 15 and 16. 
What's he saying? Paul's saying that he was the worst sinner he knew. And that Christ saved him. Like, think about, why do you think Paul was so bold in preaching the gospel? Paul thought, well, hey, if he saved me, who, who else could I possibly look down my nose at as if God wouldn't save them? And how great was the grace of God in Jesus Christ toward Paul, the chief of sinners? Twice in our brief text, Paul mentions that it was God showing through Christ mercy. Mercy to Paul, verses 13 and 16. He speaks of the grace of the Lord overflowing in verse 14, or really, we wouldn't use it this way, but you could translate it superabounding. His grace, you know, it's like dumping an ocean in a cup. Like it just, it doesn't, it can't contain, like Paul was overwhelmed by the mercy and grace that Christ showed to him. He even, think about what Jesus did. Jesus could have just saved Paul and then stuck him in a corner somewhere and, you know, think about what you did. Not what he did. He used Saul, Paul, the one who tried to destroy the church. He used him now to do what? To build it. Paul preached the gospel all over the known world in his day, in the short time that he had before his martyrdom, and saw many churches planted. He went from a church destroyer to a church planter and a gospel preacher, probably the greatest missionary the world has ever known, all by God's grace in Jesus Christ. Paul Paul saw himself as walking, talking, living proof that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Why? Because he saved him, who was the chief of sinners. And what does Paul say in verse 16? He literally saw his own conversion, his own salvation, as an example for others who would believe in the gospel of Christ for eternal life. He says, you know, uh, John Calvin again writes, uh, by giving in Paul, you know, by using Paul, by giving in Paul a pledge of his grace, Christ has called all sinners to assure expectation of obtaining forgiveness. When he was changed from a fierce and savage beast into a shepherd and pastor, Christ gave a remarkable example of grace, which might bring all men to assure confidence that access to salvation is closed to no man, however serious and outrageous his sins. He took the wolf of all wolves and turned him into a shepherd. And Paul says, look at me, not look at me how great I am. God saved me. If God saved me, why wouldn't he save you if you came to him? By faith. It's as if he's saying if Jesus would save the chief of sinners, certainly he's willing to save and will save you. If you come to him by faith for salvation. Paul is set forth in scripture as an example of his willingness to save and his ability to save. You have to kind of think, you know, Paul doesn't just say, you know, the way he says it is kind of strange. He doesn't just say, hey, here's this thing. Jesus Christ came to save. He calls it a saying. You almost wonder if Paul muttered this to himself or repeated this to himself during all of his journeys, during all of his ministry in the gospel, during all the things that he suffered uh, for the gospel as he traveled all around the world preaching about Christ. He might have kept this in mind while he was suffering many things during his ministry. You might know he, he endured and persevered a lot of things, a lot of suffering, because he knew that Jesus would save Sinners by his ministry. You know, it's one thing to just do it because Christ sends him to do it. That would be enough. But you had to know somewhere that one of his motivations must have been that he knew that Christ was going to work through the preaching of his gospel. He knew sinners were going to be saved. He saw it happen. 
This is what he said in 2 Timothy 2, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He says, tells Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Why does he say that? He's saying, remember, he's alive. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. In other words, he's alive and reigning and working now as you preach. Your preaching isn't just hot air and empty words. He says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And then he says, for which I am suffering, bound with chains. He was in prison as he wrote that letter. Bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. You know, Paul, Paul didn't say, oh no, I'm in jail. Now what can Jesus possibly do? Because he doesn't have me out there. He says, the word of, the word of God is not bound. You can chain all the preachers you want. It won't stop the gospel. He said, but this is what he says in verse, verse 10. Therefore, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why did Paul willingly endure all these sufferings? I mean, beatings, shipwrecks, stonings, eventually laid down his life under Nero in Rome. He knew Jesus was risen from the dead, that he was at work, he was reigning. He knew that the word of God, no matter what happened to him, the word of God could not be bound. And so he says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And notice how he describes those who come to Christ by faith for salvation. He calls them the elect. That's another reason he endured. He knew that God in his grace and mercy had chosen to save a multitude of sinners from before the foundation of the world. And because of that, the gospel was going to bear fruit. And so Paul Nothing was too much to suffer for Paul in preaching the gospel because he knew what? Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and he would do just that. The example of Paul's salvation should also be an encouragement to the despairing evangelist or preacher in sharing the gospel. Just like it encouraged Paul. If, if, if Jesus would save Paul, then there's no one that any of us should look down our noses at as being beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace in Christ. No one. Paul wasn't kidding. We might think Paul's being, oh, you're being falsely modest. Paul wasn't being falsely modest. If you put him on a lie detector test, is it Paul, who's the worst sinner? And Paul would say, me. And it wouldn't give him up as lying. Paul, Paul had, a, had a grasp of how bad his sin was in opposing Christ and his church and his gospel. Like Paul, you and I should be of the mindset that if Jesus saved us, he'll save anyone. We don't know, I don't always think like that. You probably don't either, but we should. If he saved you, if he saved me, who is he possibly not going to save? What kind of sinner has sinned so badly that Jesus won't save them through the preaching of his gospel? There's no one. There's no one, if they're still living and breathing in this, on this earth, that is beyond his reach. May our Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead, as Paul said, by his grace, uh, teach and use each one of us to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to our neighbors in Ramona and elsewhere, that they also might know the real reason for the season that we celebrate, which is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen.